0: Hi friends, I hope you're well. Today we are talking about teaching students to play melodies by ear. My name is Victoria Bowler, and this is episode 63 of Elemental Conversations. A few days ago on Instagram stories, we talked about playing songs by ear. We were talking about the song Planesies, Clapsies. And there are a few follow-up messages about that approach and uh, maybe some different ways that we could facilitate this process if it's not something that students are very used to doing in an elementary music setting. So that is what we will talk about today. We'll talk about what is really happening when we play by ear, which is that we are listening to music and we are creating meaning out of the melody. So we'll talk about really listening by ear, which is the core of the work when it comes to playing by ear. And we'll talk about a step-by-step process that we can use to play melodies by ear specifically on barred instruments. And then uh, because this might be new for students, we'll back up just in case we need to brush up on some of these prerequisite experiences with uh, instrument technique and mechanism and everything like that. And we'll dive into a few logistics that are going to help things go a little bit more smoothly when it's time to actually implement this in a classroom setting. Before we jump in, I remember learning to play by ear. When I was a kid, I loved playing songs by ear. And it was actually kind of a problem uh, when I was in piano lessons because I didn't want to read the notation on the page. I just wanted to play all of the songs by ear because I had an older sister who had already gone through those same books. And I am definitely not alone in this. (laughs) Maybe you can relate or maybe you have a similar story. And my sister once, I was playing piano and I was trying to figure out a song by ear, and we had someone over at the house um, while I was playing, and my sister commented to that person that Victoria just plays all of the notes on the piano until she finds the one that she's looking for she was right. (laughs) That was exactly my strategy. I hadn't put it into those words until I heard her describe it to someone else, but that's absolutely what I would do. I would sing the song one pitch at a time and I would do my best to follow it up and down the keyboard. So that's fine. That's a great approach. If all of the pitches are right there next to each other, right? Like do, do 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 everything is fine, but then if there's a skip or a leap or anything like that, how do I know where that melody lands? I know which direction it's going, but I don't know how far it's going. Does that make sense? And so I would stop the song and I would just sing whatever pitch I needed to, to play next. So And I would stop right there and I would literally sing loo, and I would sustain that pitch and I would just play all the keys around it. There it is. And that's how. I figured out what note to play next. Okay, so now the problem is I have to back up and I have to put that note, that pitch back in context. So, okay, so let's back up. Bum 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 bum. Everything's good. Bum. Oh, wait. Now I forgot it. I forgot it. It's been too long. So, then I have to go through the entire process again. There it is. And you do that several times in a row until you've memorized that little chunk of the song. And then you can move on to the next piece. That was my process. So I had to back up to the beginning and just go to that same spot and do the same thing over and over and over again. And this took a long time. (laughs) And I am confident that it was not pleasant for other people in my house to listen to. It did work. This was a strategy that worked for me. I could figure out the song eventually. It just took a lot of perseverance because my strategy was essentially to bang my head against a wall until I knocked that wall down right? I was on the right track, but what I did not yet understand at, you know, eight, nine years old is that a melody lives in a scalar grid of melodic contour and intervallic relationships. So as long as you know how to think about the song, there is almost nothing between thinking it in your head and playing it on the keys. I had the pitch discrimination to know when I was playing the pitch that I was singing, but I did not yet have a process for how to think about the melody before I started just kind of plunking around (laughs) the keyboard and um, kind of just like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what was left after, after everything kind of fell off. So playing by ear is not out of reach for anyone. It's certainly not out of reach for the elementary musicians we work with. And that is especially true because we can teach a pathway that is much more intuitive than the one that I developed (laughs) as a piano student. We can teach one that is based on some very elemental ways of knowing music, starting with how we think about music, how we hear and make sense of melody. If we're going to talk about how to play by ear, we are going to need to first teach how to listen to music. And there are a few different approaches that we could take. You might recall some of these options from your aural skills days, like solfege syllables or intervals, or maybe your school uh, used scale degrees, used numbers like my undergrad did. Uh, But I think that is kind of the exception. Uh, For our purposes today, let's talk about solfege syllables in movable dough. Let's talk about intervals and let's talk about melodic contour as the main tools that we will use for listening and analyzing a melody. There is some interesting research that has been done about how people perceive the music that they are hearing. Are they going to listen to a series of disconnected pitches that when you step back end up creating a melody? Or are they listening to a cohesive phrase that moves around a scalar grid and is dependent upon a tonal context? So in other words, are we hearing isolated intervals? Do, 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 major third, minor second, up, 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 do, 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 or are we hearing tonal relationships? And if you are interested, I will link two of those studies in the blog post that goes along with this podcast episode. So uh, you can just click that link in your show notes and you should uh, be all set to go. For our conversation, I want to suggest that listening within a tonal context to a melody that moves along a scalar grid is the most useful approach, more than memorizing the distance between pitches, more than memorizing, you know, what a major third and a minor third and perfect fourth, more than memorizing those intervals. Now, intervals are going to play a part in this conversation, but they are not the primary starting point that we're going to use. Because DO RE MI is a very different melodic function than SO LA TI even though all of those intervals are the same distance apart. Does that make sense? And this is one of the many reasons that we use solfege syllables as the primary way to discuss melody. It has to do with listening to function instead of just listening to distance. So when we help students play by ear, one of the most important things we can do is help them think about what the phrase contour looks like. We are listening to, going back to this idea of uh, hearing a melody and making sense out of it, we are listening to a line that we could paint on a canvas and it's going to be a swoopy line that is connected instead of like isolated pitches, like isolated dabs on the canvas. If we were just listening to intervals then we would just have these dabs that we put on the canvas that we can measure the distance between. But we are putting those dabs in a context. So everything is created, uh, excuse me, everything is connected with this line. So here we are combining melodic contour with solfege, with intervals to create a painting of the melody that then we can transfer to an instrument. And it all starts with listening. All right. So when we introduce a melody that students are going to eventually play by ear, we will not start <laughs> by explaining what intervals are, and we will not start by asking them to just memorize solfege syllables, right? We're going to start where we always start, which is an active and embodied and communal musical experience. And in an active music room, that looks like a lot of physical and oral and visual modes of musicking. So let's break those down and talk about some possible uh, ways to use these different approaches uh, to inputting musical experiences in our bodies. In order to play a song by ear, we need to have internalized the song. Yes. So how do we internalize a song? Well, we're going to use our senses to have repeated and active experiences with it. We have talked about this in a blog post on physical preparation before, um, but it's probably worth mentioning here. When we talk about physical and aural and visual modes of understanding music, these are not the only ways that people learn and people are not isolated to one particular way of knowing, right? Like um, I'm a visual learner, which means I don't use any other senses when I take in information. Instead, when we combine the senses that we use to input information, what we can see and what we can hear and what we can physically do in the case of music, that gives us a more holistic approach to experiencing a musical event. So we will experience music as something that we can hear, something that we can see or the visual representation we can see, and then something that we physically do. Playing by ear is an extension of feeling music in our bodies, especially when we talk about playing songs on barred instruments. So when the melody steps up, our mallets go up. When the melody skips down, our mallets skip down. This is one of the reasons that barred instruments are such a beautiful first instrument for doing things like playing by ear. So because this is an extension to how music feels in our bodies, we are going to find a way to show that melodic contour physically by putting that melody in our bodies spatially. And we've already talked about one possible way to do that, which is to get out your melodic paintbrush and trace the melody, paint that melody with your imaginary paintbrush in front of you. So let's do that with a few melodies just as an example. Uh, let's take a bitonic melody. We'll just go. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. If we were to take our paintbrush out and paint this melody, our paintbrush is basically just moving up and down through space, up, down, up, down, fetch a pail of water. Great. We could expand that to a tritonic melody if we were going to add in a third pitch. And let's use an example, Plainsies, Clapsies. This is what we were using the other day. So let's take our melodic paintbrush and we will paint the melody of Plainsies, Clapsies. Here we go. Plainsies, Clapsies, turn around to backsies. It's the same pattern over and over and over. We start start with our paintbrush in front of us. It moves up and then it moves down and then it moves down again. And it's essentially that same shape the whole entire song. Now let's expand it Again, even further, let's do a tetratonic melody and let's use Ickle Ockle." Ickle Ackle, blue bottle fishes in the sea. If you want a partner, please pick me. For our purposes, let's use uh, that variant of Ickle Ockle." So the first phrase and the third phrase look very similar to Jack and Jill. If we were to paint these melodies of that first phrase and the third phrase and put it up next to the painting of Jack and Jill. those. Paintings Paintings would look basically exactly the same, right? The second phrase has this higher pitch, fishes in the sea. It kind of goes up, kind of similar to plainsies clapsies, right? Plainsies clapsies, fishes in the sea. Those are all of the different points on our previous melody from Plainsys Clapsies, but we've changed the direction of that contour. Fishes down, up. And then we rest on this one. Fabulous. And then the very last phrase, please pick me. We are moving down and our painting will end on the lowest point that we've painted so far in these three songs. Okay, great. So now we've taken some time to paint some of these phrases. And that's an important part of playing by ear, but it's not the entire process. So let's go a level deeper and analyze this melody. So of one of the target phrases we're working with, which word is the highest? What pitch is that? Which word is the lowest? What pitch is that? And if there's a new pitch that we don't know yet, is it a lot higher and a lot lower or um, just a little bit higher, like a step higher or lower than other pitches that we know? this is the process of figuring out the solfege syllables by ear. Now, if all of the song pitches that we are using, if all of those are consciously known at this point, then we'll just sing the song on solfege and show hand signs. If not, then we'll sing what we can on solfege and we will substitute something else (laughs) and a different phrase, a different word for the missing element that we have not figured out quite yet. This is part of our pathway to figuring it out is analyzing this melody and getting very granular about what we hear. So let's go back to this bitonic melody. This is such a nice place to start playing songs by ear because you just have these two options as uh, just a very quick aside. My level two uh, Kodai pedagogy teacher, Karen Shuford, talked about this as such a great reason for starting with so and me instead of mi re do. Although mi re do definitely has its own merits, when it comes to um, having choices that students are engaging in high and low instead of high middle low as the very 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 first um, set of melodic choices that you're going to analyze that just tears things down a little bit. It just simplifies it and streamlines our choices that much more. So um, I think she made a, a really beautiful point there, which is why we are starting with a so and me melody with Jack and Jill. So let's do that. We are going to sing and move to show the high and the low sounds of the melody. That would look like high, high, low, low, high, high, low, low. And I'm putting my hand on my head for high and my, hand on my shoulder for low. Or if these are consciously known pitches at this point, then we can sing, so so me me, so so me me. Same thing with my hand on my head for so, and my hand on my shoulder for me let's expand that to a tritonic melody where we're adding in la. So la is going to be that new unknown pitch or that new pitch that we have just kind of added on to our melodic family. So we'll sing and we'll move to show. So up so me so so up up so me or so la so me so so la la so me again using our hands to show that pitch direction so my hands are on my head for so they're in the air for la or up and they're still on my shoulders for me this doesn't change And then same thing, we can expand this again to this tetratonic melody with ickle ackle. So uh, let's just extract this very last phrase. Please pick me, so me, low pitch, or so me, do. And for our purposes, do is going to live on our waist. So I'm going from head to shoulders to waist pairing this physical uh, embodiment of the melody with the solfege syllables or with a replacement for those solfege syllables that still speaks to uh, the function of what this pitch does. This is a conversation for a different time, but this is why we start with student language instead of teacher language, because we want to show the function of these solfege syllables and not just have a memorized script that we are walking through. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti, Do, right? When we talk about the function of these pitches, low or home or down, that tells us what it is, and that is going to make it even easier to move on to our next step, which is putting this melody on instruments. We have already done, this is the nice thing, we've already done the bulk of the work for playing the song by ear. That happens before we ever even sit down and play a single bar on the instruments. Because once we know, again, once we know how to hear this melody, once we know how to make sense of it in our minds, there is a direct line to just placing that melody where it would fall on the barred instruments. So let's talk about connecting this to a visual representation. Inside the planning binder, the go-to visual I use for analyzing a melody and connecting it to a visual is a barred instrument. Uh, Because when we place this barred instrument vertically with the low side at the bottom and the high side at the top, it gives us such a great map of what this melody is going to look like spatially on a page. I also like the visual of, just as an aside, I like the visual of stair steps as well. That does the exact same thing for me. And then another great visual is the five line staff. This is why we put melodies on the staff, right? Because we can see the melody going up, the melody going down. So that makes a great visual as well. And sometimes I will combine these visuals, especially uh, in like a presentation moment, uh, something like putting the stair steps on top of the barred instrument or putting putting the staff lines behind the barred instrument, those are great options that I like to do just to show how everything is connected. These are not isolated things. The stair steps are the exact same thing as the five line staff. The five line staff is the exact same thing as the barred instrument. It just depends on which visual we want to use and whatever visual we use will be dependent on our purpose. So um, if you click the link in your show notes, you will uh, go to a blog post that goes along with this podcast episode, and I have some pictures of what I mean there. These are just pulled straight from the planning binder, but I have stair steps, I have a barred instrument, and I have the five-line staff, and I have the lines of the five-line staff going through all of those so you can see how they are all connected. Okay. Like I said, at this point, we are basically done. All we need to know really is where to start our melody because then we just put those pieces together that we have been singing and that we have been moving to and that we have been thinking about. Because if I tell you where Do is on a Bart instrument, then we can figure out the rest of the Solfege family from there. So because uh, Do and me are a skip apart, me is a skip above do and a skip above me is so and ray lives between me and do and la is a step above so so where i if i know where one pitch is then i instantly know the entire song i know exactly where all of the rest of the pitches live on the instrument because i know that all of these pitches are connected to each other they are not isolated letter names they are not isolated into Intervals. They all live in a tonal context, and we've already set the tonal context by singing it on soulfish. So let's uh, connect this very, um, in a very concrete way to some of these songs that we've been talking about. Let's look at Jack and Jill. This is a so and me melody. If I tell you that soul lives on sea right now, then we will just skip down to find me on A right now. And then we can play our song from there. C, C, A, A, C, C, A. Or so, so, me, me, so, so, me. If I tell you that so lives on G right now, then that means that me would live on. E, that's correct, because so and me are skip apart. And E is the pitch that is a skip lower than G. So we can sing and play the song in that key as well. G, G, E, E, G, G, E right? We can do the same thing with Plainsy's clapsies because if so lives on G right now, then law is on A because law is a step higher than so. And I can see on my barred instrument, on that visual, I can see that law, that A is a step above G. So a step above so is law. So that means that A is law. Beautiful and we can play the song in that key as well. G-A-G-E. And we could change this up as well. So let's imagine that I want to play this teacher talk in the key of D. So before class, or I would help students work on this um, in class, changing out that F natural to an F sharp. But let's just say that now... A is so, if A is so, then B is la, because so and la are a step apart, law is a step higher than so, and that would mean that me is on F sharp, and we can play the song in that key as well. Same thing with ickle akl we can play ickle akl and you know, first graders, second graders can play ickle akl in many different keys as long as they know where do is. So if we decide that G is so, and we are trying to play Please pick me, so, me, do. Students can figure out G, E, C. Because we know that so and me are skip apart. And me and do are also a skip apart. Right? We can also change this uh, melody and have so on C. If we want to jump up to um, a different part on our instrument. And we would still be playing so. But in this case, it will be C-A-F, right? The distance between the pitches doesn't change and the function of the pitches do not change. What changes is where their houses are going to live on the barred instrument. We can transpose this song anywhere so long as so long as the keyboard is set up for it. Uh, Because, again, we are looking at this relationship of connected solfege syllables, right? For a lot of students in a lot of situations, this is all that they need uh, in order to be set up to play a melody by ear like I said, it's very intuitive. So as long as they have kind of the workings of the instrument and the instrument mechanics down, that is all they're going to need. But if this is students first time playing a barred instrument by ear, um, or maybe even playing their first experience playing a barred instrument at all, there are, uh, this is not the first experience (laughs) that I would recommend. I would recommend that we back up and talk about some prerequisite experiences. So let's talk about that we use barred instruments as the first uh, pitched percussion experience and and the first um, pitched instrument experience really in our elementary general music classes because the barrier to entry on these instruments is so low it's much lower than uh, like a violin or a recorder even though we would also consider a recorder to be an elemental. Uh, instrument, it's not the one that we are going to start with in first grade, right? For barred instruments, really the only thing we need to know in terms of the mechanics is just the high side and the low side, right? So let's talk about some of those experiences. When we look at a barred instrument, we can think of it like a mountain or a pine tree. So the short side is at the top and that makes the high sounds. And then the long side is at the bottom and that makes the low sounds. I could probably do a whole episode about barred instrument exploration because there is so much fun that we could have with um, how we hold the mallets and how we take the bars off and how we pick up the instrument and, and everything like that. But for now, let's just talk about figuring out which side of the instrument is the high side and which side is the low side and all the better, in my opinion, if we can connect it back to the repertoire that we want students to use. So once again, let's go back to our tried and true Jack and Jill went up the hill. Let's turn our mallets, excuse me, our uh, instrument vertically. So as I'm sitting on the ground, the low side of the instrument is right in front of me. And I'm going to have to kind of reach my hands forward away from my body to get to that high side. Okay, so now let's go back to our tried and true Jack and Jill and let's make our mallets uh, walk or skip or tiptoe or slide or whatever it is up and down the hill. Instead of actually playing the song, I just want students to practice moving up and moving down. And there are so many different motions that we might do here. Like I said, what would it sound like if your mallets are walking? What would it sound like if they were tiptoeing? What if they were sliding? So we can go all of these different ways up and down the hill. For these clapsies, let's take our scarf and let's imagine that it is falling from the top of the instrument down to the bottom. Now start at the bottom, throw it up to the top, and then let it fall gracefully down. For ickle ockle, we might decide that our fish are going to start at the bottom of the ocean and then swim all the way up to the top and splash around when they get there and then dip back down to the bottom of the ocean. So these are just different ways to approach playing kind of the extremes of the instrument in a way that is still um, artful, it's still very fun, and again, it's still connected back to the repertoire. Those are the first experiences that we are going to have. Again, this instrument is placed vertically. So the low side is directly in front of me and then the high side is a little bit further away. And then the next step is to flip that instrument So it is horizontal. So the right side is the high side and the left side is the low side. And we'll do the exact same activity uh, with going up to the top of the ocean and then down to the bottom of the ocean. The difference is that instead of moving on a vertical plane, now we're moving on a horizontal plane right in front of us. But the high and the low side of the instrument, that has not changed. We are just changing the placement. And I know that this is something that feels very obvious to us, like, yes, Victoria, I understand. (laughs) Uh, But to students, this is a really, really big step, figuring out which side is the top of the mountain and which is the bottom of the mountain. This takes practice. Okay, so that is the the step that we're going to want to make sure students have under their belts, this high and this low um, experience in a barred instrument playing setting. Now let's talk about logistics, because when students are working on playing a melody by ear, there is some empty airtime that we're going to need to be prepared for in class. We want students to figure out this melody on their own, right? That's the whole point (laughs) is that they're doing it by ear. They don't need us to tell them every single little bar to play. They can figure it out on their own. This means, though, that they're going to need a few minutes to kind of noodle around before their melody is solidified, before it's really in their hands. This is a nice example of independent work in elementary general music, and that can feel a little bit strange to us because we are so used to teaching in an ensemble setting, right? So, let's talk about a few things that we can do to help this process. Um, When I say this process, I mean like two minutes out of the class to help this go a little bit more smoothly. The first thing is that everyone has a job. Uh, Next, we are going to practice sharing. And then the last thing is we'll talk about how to manage noise. So first, everyone has a job. One of the things that I like to do here is have students work with a partner when they are figuring out a melody, and this is because if someone gets stuck at any point, they have a friend right there to help them, and they can also work together to check their work instead of always going to the teacher to ask if they are playing it correctly, like come here, come check my work, come check my work. They can work together to figure it out. Episode 34 was all about strategies for sharing instruments, and one of the most important pieces of sharing instruments is that everyone has a job. So as students are working together to figure out the melody, one partner is going to sing and play, and then the other partner, whoever they're with, they're going to sing and point to the instrument, like point to where you're supposed to be playing or singing and doing hand signs to the melody, or singing on letter names, or they can sing on solfege syllables. The the very specific job does not really matter. You can choose what you want students to do, or partners can choose what they want their partner to do. The important thing, though, is that everyone has something that they are doing. Everyone has a task. When everyone has a job, that really helps the next piece of this puzzle, which is to practice sharing. I like to work towards students sharing their mallets without me having to tell them when to pass mallets off. This is another way. Again, this is another way that we can help students learn to monitor their own work. We are not scheduling and controlling every single action that they take. Yes, they are a team and they have a task that they're supposed to accomplish together. The whole point of playing by ear is that students do not need us. We are developing some independence and some interdependence. And part of that is learning how to facilitate sharing. So if students are ready to share without Um, any input from us. And I have taught in places where students are ready to do that. They can just share their mallets back and forth. Then that's great. They're in a great place to, to just go ahead and jump straight into this task. So we will let them know how long they have to play. And then we're going to set the expectation up front that they can share without us telling them when to switch mallets. And then You know, after they've been working for a while, we'll just give them a heads up when the time is halfway over and then maybe when they have like, you know, 20 seconds left or so. So an example script might sound something like, uh, all right, first grade musicians, you have three minutes to work with your partner and figure out this phrase by ear. I know that you don't need me to tell you how to share. I trust that you can work together as a team. And then later when time is, you know, about halfway up, we will say, um, all right, first grade friends, we have about a minute and a half left. And then we'll continue with uh, something like just now, as I was walking over to this part of the room, I heard someone out of the corner of my ear. I heard someone say, here you go. You can try now. And I will point to the bars while you play. That is exactly what sharing sounds like. So as we are giving directions, we're going to highlight what sharing sounds like, give students um, hopefully several examples of what it sounds like to share mallets back and forth. Now, if students are not there yet, that is totally fine. If you're like, oh, Victoria, if I asked my students just to share on their own, my class would be in tears and I would be in tears as well. (laughs) Okay, that's fine, Um, because this is a learned skill right this is a learned skill that we can develop over time we have a lot of years with these students because hopefully we are going to see them for you know the entirety of their elementary music experience so that's okay if we don't know how to share mallets in first grade a great boundary that students can use and that they can use to self monitor is just to pass off mallets every other turn so um one round through the phrase that we're playing and then you pass them off and they get the other partner gets a turn at the phrase we're playing and then pass them back etc cetera, etc cetera. So with that, you know, we're talking about sharing mallets, which means there's going to be some noise involved. <laughs> so let's talk about managing noise because that's a very important consideration here. Yes, If students are using mallets, my recommendation, in addition to just explaining to students that they should play quietly, right? Helping them just monitor their noise level on their own. I recommend flipping those mallets over so students are not playing with the head, with the plastic or with the yarn part, but they're playing with the end of the stick. And that is going to bring the noise level down a lot. Another great option is not using mallets at all. And students can just play with their fingertips instead. All right, we have talked about a lot today. We have talked about um, setting the scene for playing by ear by really thinking about what we are hearing because playing by ear is hearing by ear, hearing and making sense by ear. So we talked about this idea of listening to one connected line to a phrase that is set within a tonal context. We talked about some physical and aural and visual pathways to hearing and analyzing and understanding and conceptual actualizing music. We also talked about some instrumental experiences like melodic contour, um, the, the contour of the instrument, the high and low sounds, high and low sides of the instrument that we're going to need to have as prerequisites to this work, just in terms of instrument mechanics. And then we also talked about logistics, like making sure that everyone has a job, that students know how to share mallets, and that we are taking some steps to put some boundaries on noise. If this is going to be a brand new experience for your students, definitely do not feel like you need to tackle an entire song. Instead, let's just choose one phrase. And this can work essentially with any song that you're learning. So find a phrase that has basically all known elements. And when I say known elements, I mean like the melodic uh, material of the song is consciously known for the most part. And then we're going to walk through these physical and aural and visual steps that we talked about earlier today. And then later, don't do all of this in one class, but later when you sense that students are ready, ask them to figure out one of those phrases by ear. Just try it. Just see what students can do. Because the very worst thing that happens is that you jump in and you just teach it by rote, right? <laughs> that's that's the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario here is not very bad at all. <laughs> I wish that, you know, having said all of this, I wish that I could go back in time and teach eight-year-old Victoria some of the things that we talked about today. Because... When you can play a song by ear without relying on notation, so many musical doors open up. It gives you freedom. It gives us freedom. It gives our students freedom to play songs from other people just by hearing them in our heads. And equally important, it allows students to take the songs that they have created in their heads and actualize them on an instrument. It's a very special thing.